Thank you, Caleb. That's a very kind introduction. I will say if I'm the smartest person that you know, you probably should get to know more people. <coughs> um, we do have that QR code up there, and the, uh, it will also be up in between the sessions. We'll kind of have a park slide, and that'll be up there. So if you think of something through the session, you're like, oh, no, I didn't scan the QR code, uh, it will be back. Uh, small groups is something that uh, I have, as, as Pastor Caleb mentioned, I have had the opportunity uh, to participate in something that I've been able to live. It's something uh, that when I, I, I came to Colonial Hills, it wasn't my job description, but it was something that got put there eventually. I came to, to take over, and it's something that I have come to believe in and to see the benefit in and to believe in. We're going to talk about that this isn't just, hey, this seems like a really good idea. Hey, this is trendy. Everybody's doing it. Why don't we do small groups too? But I think there's actually solid biblical basis for why we would, why we would structure our churches this way that we would have a small groups ministry. Let me give uh, just a quick overview of what the morning's going to look like. Uh, we're going to start off with a philosophy of small group, and that's going to be, uh, that's this session, that's going to be combined, that's going to be everybody. Um, after that, those that are part of the Freedom That Lasts group, uh, we'll split out and you'll go uh, with Pastor Kurtz, and um, I'll uh, keep those who are going to be a part of the Sunday morning small groups, and we'll uh, work through that a little bit more and kind of talk through philosophy and not just philosophy, but practice, okay? We believe in small groups. We're, we're giving them a shot. What, what does that look like? And then our last session will be a question and answer session. And uh, looking forward to that as well. So let's go ahead and let's get started with our first session and talk about a philosophy of small groups. Okay, so philosophy, that's a word that um, people respond to in different ways. <laughs> there are some people who absolutely just start drooling when you say the word philosophy. Um, our first session is entitled Philosophy, so you can probably guess which category of person I fall into. There's other people who's, who hear the word philosophy and think, man, that sounds about as exciting as watching paint dry. Um, which actually, we've just remodeled our house and watching paint dry can be surprisingly fun. Um, but y you understand the, the expression. So why are we talking about philosophy? Well, philosophy answers a very important question. It answers the question, why? Why are we doing small groups? Um, I'll say this, um, my job, doing small groups, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. Um, the way we do it right now, we have about 20 groups. Uh, within each group, and, and you kind of have to build up to this, within each group we try to have two teachers and one small group leader. So that's three people per group, that's 60 people. So um, my job includes sending out an email blast to 60 people saying, will you help out with small group? And typically what happens is half of them get back to you right away and are like, yeah, I'd love to do that. And you're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. This is great. And then you have to email the other half like, hey, guys, I, I asked, would you be willing to help out? And some of them get back, oh, no, I can't. Some of them are like, yeah, I can. I, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. <laughs> and those last five end up getting to be really hard to fill. And you start asking people, asking people. Um, you're trying to keep track of who's responded to what. I joked with people sometimes that really I'm the pastor of email and Excel. That should be my job description. Because you're just sending out emails and filling in Excel sheet. Okay, this person's helping, this person's there. Why would we do all of that? Because it would actually be a whole lot simpler for me to just write curriculum and hand it to four people who get up there and teach it in front of everybody. That would be a lot easier. But we make the intentional choice to say, no, we want to do small groups. We believe in small groups. Why is that? Why do we do small groups? And let me give you just a picture that I think helps, should hopefully help you understand why it is uh, that we do that, okay? 
this is uh, my home church, Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We could put a picture of Faith Baptist and Taylor's up there that would probably look very similar. Um, <clears throat> you come to this, uh, well, you don't come to this church, but you go to your church regularly. And so you walk in on a Sunday morning and you see a room that per- looks pretty much like this and it, it doesn't really phase you. Um, probably at least most of you. And you're here for a small groups training session, so that tells me that you're probably pretty bought into the church. And you forget how intimidating and isolating this can feel if you're not really connected to people, okay? And I know that because I've walked in, I, I can remember um, when I was a student at, at a university down the road, right? Coming into some of the bigger churches in Greenville and just feeling like I was in a room of hundreds of people and I didn't know anybody. And if you haven't done that, um, I'm not saying like skip a service at faith and go experience that, but I, I'm just telling you, uh, we had somebody that was uh, newly saved, was visiting the youth group and uh, came in and kind of came from a, a rougher background and walked into the auditorium and the youth pastor was there with him and just watched him almost ease up with fear at this big, massive room. This is really intimidating if you're not one of the regulars who's bought in, who's here all the time, okay? So how do we help people, how do we help all of those people feel like this is their church and they belong here? Well, one of the ways, doesn't have to be the only way, shouldn't be the only way, but one of the ways and a key way that we do that at our church and one of the ways that I'd like to recommend to you is through a small groups ministry. So small groups is one of the main ways that we connect believers with believers. And then we'll talk about this as well. We want to teach people how to study and apply God's word. And again, we'll talk more about that um, as we get going. I don't, think we've, uh, I don't think we've started with prayer. So we're going to talk about the biblical foundation. But before we do that, uh, let's take a, a quick moment and go to the Lord and ask for his blessing on this time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, that you love us, that you gave yourself for us. We thank you that you are building the church. And um, we are humbled by the fact that you would choose us, uh, broken, sinful people, to partner with you in that work. Uh, Lord, we think of Ephesians 3, where it says that what you're doing now is to display your wisdom to the principalities and powers. And we're humbled by the thought that, that we would get to be a part of that and that you would um, be so excited about what's going on in the church that you would point to it as the premier demonstration of your wisdom. Please help us as we work through this material. Please help us to be humble. Uh, Please help us to think scripturally and carefully and practically. I pray that that you would bless uh, Faith Baptist and Taylors. I pray that you would bless Freedom That Lasts. I pray that you would bless uh, the small groups initiative that uh, Pastor Caleb is seeking to launch. And I pray that you would help us all Uh, to love you and obey you and to serve you. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I asked this question earlier, but, um, you know, as as we get started, we want to ask, okay, are small groups biblical? Now, small groups, okay, there's no way around that. Every church, it seems like, is trying to do small groups. Let's do small groups. Let's do small groups. And there can be a reaction against that that says, well, I don't want to do small groups, okay? I, I kind of like that impulse, right? That's not necessarily a bad impulse of, okay, something's trendy. Well, maybe I'm just going to be the guy that doesn't do it, okay? Like, I, I get that, and there's actually a lot of instances where that is me, where I'm like, okay, this is trendy. I don't think there's anything really to it, 
So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be a part of that. You have to ask the question, okay, small groups is trendy. Why is it trendy? And more importantly, is there anything in small groups that really is biblically founded? And I think with small groups, there is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through uh, two points here. First, I want to talk about Jesus in small groups. And we're going to see kind of from the teaching uh, perspective that there is something different that happens in a small group environment that's different than what happens when somebody gets up and preaches. Okay. And, and we need both, by the way. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm up here preaching. I'm not against preaching. But I think, and don't, don't get, don't accuse me of heresy here. I think that preaching alone is not enough. Why, why would you say that? I say that because I look at the life of Christ. And he did a lot of preaching. And he did a lot of small group discipleship. So we're going to see that. We're also going to see uh, later on that the New Testament calls for connection. It calls for connection is kind of the new buzzword. The Greek word is koinonia. It's fellowship. It's, it's a mutual belonging. And small groups is one, not the only way, but I think it's one of the ways that we can uh, implement this. So uh, let's work through this. I want to start off by going to Matthew 16. So turn to Matthew 16 with me if you will. And we come across what I think is one of the most fascinating passages in Scripture as we watch Jesus basically engage in a small groups meeting with his disciples. Okay, So I want to look at two passages with Jesus. The first one is Peter's confession and rebuke. And we find this in Matthew 16, um, starting in, uh, th- that's a typo there that should say, uh, Matthew 16, verse 13. Okay, So we, it starts off here, it says... Um, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Okay, pop quiz, guys, who am I? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they they should uh, tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And it goes on, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Okay, so let's, let's kind of break this down. Let's talk about this a little bit, and then I want to make a couple of observations as it relates to small group, okay? So as we think about this passage, uh, what's going on here? Well, we, we're so used to the name Jesus Christ that we, we forget there was a time when the disciples didn't know, is this the Messiah, the Christ? Now, they, they hoped he was, obviously. 
Um, if we study the time around this, it, it's interesting. Uh, scholars have actually noted <laughs> that if you start counting in Daniel from the end of the 70 weeks, you end up pretty close to being around, or at least the end of the 69, as those of us who are dispensationalists would argue. But regardless, the Jews, they were all arguing about how you count this, but a lot of them, there was a lot of expectation, like, this is the time. Um, and, by the way, they were right. And so everybody's kind of looking around, and where's the Messiah, and is that the and, and there's kind of this expectation and this hope. And so you've got a guy walking around doing all these miracles, who's teaching, and people are starting to follow him. What are you thinking? <laughs> You're thinking, man, I really hope this is the guy. But up until this point in his ministry, Jesus has not told his disciples, yes, I'm the Messiah. Okay? We have to remember that because we kind of get in Matthew chapter 4 and he's announcing the kingdom. And, and we think in our minds, oh, he just told everybody he's the Messiah. He hasn't told everybody he's the Messiah. He hasn't even told his disciples he's the Messiah. He's just saying, hey, God's kingdom is coming. It's Matthew chapter 16 that he looks at them and says, hey, guys, who do people think I am? And they're like, well, you know, here... Some people think you're John. Some people think that you're Elijah. Some people think you're Jeremiah, another prophet. And he says, okay, who do you think that I am? Okay. And you know, you know what they're thinking. And Peter says what they're thinking. He says, we think you're the Messiah. And it's interesting. Jesus could have just said, hey, guys, I got something to tell you. I'm the Messiah. He didn't do that. He asked them, who do you think that I am? And Peter steps up and says, I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus affirms this and says, you're absolutely right, I am. And, and you are blessed of God for, 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 for having this revealed to you. You didn't figure it out. The Father revealed it. And, and there's this incredible promise that's given. And we won't talk about what that promise exactly is talking about because that's a fun uh, exegetical uh, debate that people like to have. We'll just move on from that. But, but here's what's interesting. If you look at what the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah was, and what the Jews of the first century were expecting, they were expecting a coming, reigning, conquering king. And there's a very good reason why they expected that. The Old Testament predicts a coming, reigning, conquering king. And by the way, they weren't wrong to expect that because one day Jesus is going to come back as the coming, reigning, conquering king. But first, he had to take care of the sin problem. And, and the Jews, even the disciples, didn't quite understand that. So Jesus begins to instruct them. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests of the scribes and be killed, be raised again the third day. Now you're Peter. And you're thinking to yourself, this is not what the Messiah does. You just said you're the Messiah. And you're thinking, well, maybe the teacher's discouraged. You know, maybe he needs us to kind of help him along. Maybe he just needs to look out and see... Um, you know, that, that we've got his back. We're not going to, this mission's not going to fail. And so he says, no, 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 no. Here's mine. He's, a, as, do you borrow an expression today? He's a little high in his own supply, right? He's, he's got a pretty good opinion of himself right now. He's like, no, no, teacher, you shouldn't do that. And he just gets clocked. I mean, this is the strongest rebuke that any disciple gets following the strongest commendation that any disciple gets. I mean, it's back to back. That's instructive for us. We don't have time to get into that. But what does this teach us about small groups? Well, I, I want to notice a couple things. First of all, small groups impress the necessity of personal understanding. He asks, whom do men say that I am? Whom do you say that I am? When I was a uh, GA, they, they made us go to in-service. 
I, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Um, I, I enjoy teaching. I do not enjoy all of the administrative uh, details that go along with that. And one of the things that was interesting about going to in-service was that they talked a little bit about pedagogy, about how we think accurately about teaching. And they went over something called Bloom's Revised Taxonomy. And the idea is that just getting up and lecturing at your students isn't enough to help them learn. You're like, well, that's a little bit offensive. But it's kind of true. Um, because it's, it's really clear in my mind, and I might even be a really good communicator, but it's not until I start asking questions that I find out how much you really do and don't know. Um, this, this was really hit home to me once when I had uh, somebody who had been in our, in our church, in our singles ministry, uh, who'd been coming regularly, I mean faithfully. I mean, every time the doors were open, this individual was there, and they started meeting for discipleship with one of the men in the church. And I asked that guy, I said, hey, how are things going? And he says, man, it's okay. He's like, it's just really hard to have a spiritual conversation. You know, like this is, feels like, you know, dealing with, almost with, a, with a, a baby in the faith. And I got a little bit offended. I mean, I say that tongue in cheek, but I'm like, that can't be. He listened to all my messages for like the last two years. He should know a whole lot about the Bible. You know, there is something different about sitting in the pew, hearing, and somebody looking across the table and saying, what do you think about this passage? That's different. And you know what? We need that. Because that impresses on their heart and on their minds, you've got to know the Bible. Not just the preacher. Yeah, the preacher's got to know the Bible. But you've got to know it. And it's that whole interaction really impressed on my mind that there are people who may be coming for weeks and months and even years to our churches who hear sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. Okay, and they're good sermons. I'm not saying they're bad sermons. They're good sermons. But nobody's ever really impressed on them. Hey, you've got to know this stuff. So small groups impress uh, the necessity of personal understanding. And I don't think this is just psychological mumbo jumbo, Bloom's Revised Taxonomy, pedagogical. I think this is New Testament. Jesus is his disciples because he wants them to know hey you've got to get this stuff let's move on there <clears throat> small groups also allow for the joy of discovery jesus said blessed are thou simon bar jonah now if you're going to teach here's another tool of the trade if a student can come to the right answer before you can give them the right answer it's going to stick way better if you get up there and answer to this um they're going to know the answer, and it's, it's really not going to stick. If, you, if they can figure it out, there's actually a little bit of like an adrenaline rush, right? You get all those endorphins, the dopamine, and it's like, hey, I got that, and it, and it sticks more clearly. Um, I'm teaching a Greek class right now to our high schoolers, and that is an absolute blast. I'm loving doing it. But one of the, we'll, we'll, take a, we'll put up on the screen, you know, a, a verse that we're, we're working on translating together, and I just. I know the answer and I ask a question and sometimes there's a pause and I just have to like bide my time and wait it out because I know that if the class, if somebody there can figure that out, even if it's tough, they're going to remember it way better. I can just give them the answer and then they'll have the answer, but they may not remember the answer. Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity for success. And you think about this incredible, I mean, 19 and 19, it's just incredible if you really stop and think about that, that one of the disciples was told that, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You lose all of that if Jesus just says, hey guys, by the way, I'm the Messiah. Jesus wanted Peter to get it, to figure it out on his own. And when he did, he rewarded him for it. Not only that, small groups give the opportunity for success and for failure. People have wrong ideas in their heads, and it's really good for them for that to, to come out. Okay, uh, When you're running small groups, kind of one of the more tricky situations is what do you do when somebody gives a bad response? Well, one of the questions you have to ask is how bad is this response? Okay, Sometimes they get like a little thing wrong, or you know, I'm listening to them like, well, actually, theologians debate that. Okay, you, you don't have to you know, nitpick somebody to death. But sometimes they say things and you're like, oh, that's, that's wrong thinking. Now that makes it really awkward if you're the teacher. And you kind of rather just be the one speaking and not have to address these awkward, wrong things that other people are saying. But you know what? Jesus addressed the awkward, wrong thing that Peter said. And you know what? I think that probably was pretty impactful for Peter. Um, we don't have time to go into this too much, but really what Peter's doing here is he's, he's trying to get to the, to, the, um, to the crown without the cross. Peter, what he says, what Christ's statement there is that you are savoring the things of man and not of God. What he means by that is you're thinking about this like a human, and the human way is I don't want to have to suffer. I just want to get straight to the prize. God's way is you have to go through the suffering. The suffering prepares you for the glory. And you know what? Go read the book of 1 Peter. I think Peter got the message. Because 1 Peter talks a lot about suffering and the glory that we receive as we suffer. This was an impactful moment for Peter. I don't think he ever forgets this. Um, and you know what? That's because Christ let him fail. It's because Peter felt the freedom to go up to Christ and to say all kinds of things that were wrong. Where did he get the guts to do that? Well, he got the guts to do that because Christ invited an atmosphere where the disciples could come up and ask questions and could talk to him. And it was interactive. And he didn't just talk at them. He wanted to hear from them. And small groups give us the opportunity to do that. Turn over to John 14. <clears throat> uh, we're going to want to go through this one probably a little bit quicker. Uh, but I think there's some good principles from here as well. And I just picked two out of many passages where Jesus is interacting with his disciples. Um, John chapter 14, verse 1. And we're not going to read all, of, uh, all the way down through verse 24. But it begins, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? 
uh, skip down to verse 20. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our home uh, and make our abode with him. Okay, so let's, let's uh, make a couple of observations again about this passage. First of all, I think small groups, one of the things that they do is they allow you to get a better read on the group. What do I mean by that? Well, you look at verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Why is he saying that? Probably because he's looking around the room. Everybody's a little bit freaked out about what Jesus is saying. Um, he has just told them, um, uh, verse 36, or, or um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, verse 36. Simon Peter saith unto him, and Jesus answered him, uh, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but then afterwards you shall follow me. And Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee? Now I will lay down my life for thy sake. And Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Bit of a damper. Right? I mean, this is Passover. This is Pesach. This is like our Christmas. This is the big holiday. And the disciples and Jesus are getting together to celebrate the biggest holiday in the Jewish calendar. And we're going to go out and I'm gonna, you're going to betray me. And, and he's looking around the room and... Everyone's just, how do you, how do you process this? Um, when you're preaching, it's a lot harder to kind of get a read on the room. Okay? Now, this, this size isn't terrible. Okay? I can kind of look around and see your eyes, and I think most people are tracking. I haven't seen anyone falling asleep yet, so the coffee must be working. This is a Saturday morning. I understand that. But I tell you what, you start getting up, you know, especially at a, at a church like Faith, you get up in front of a, a sea of people, it's really hard uh, to tell how people are if they're tracking with you. Um, I know uh, uh, Caleb's dad, our, our senior pastor, said he's had people come up and pastor. I'm, I'm sorry, I fell asleep. You know, this morning I just been working late, and and he's kind of he just tells him, I, you're you're fine. He's like, I have no idea who's asleep out there. It's it's a sea of people. It's it's really hard to look out and say, oh, that guy's with me. Oh man, I don't think she's tracking. You know, you get in a, in a group of 10 people and you look around the room and you're explaining something and you can kind of tell when people are really not sure what you're talking about. Small groups, it gives you the opportunity to, to kind of feel out where people are. Jesus is looking around the room and he realizes people are really troubled. They're really anxious. He says, don't be. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And he's able to address the problem. Not only that, it allows for misunderstandings to be clarified. I mean, the boldness of the disciples, and not just one disciple. We have three different disciples. We've got Thomas, we've got Philip, we've got Judas. And they're all asking him questions. And they're all, like, kind of correcting him. Uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Um, Lord, can you show us the Father? That would be enough. Judas says, Lord, how, how will you manifest yourself to us and not the world? They, they don't get this. And they're saying, wait, pause, can, can you go back on that? And again, that Jesus invited this kind of discussion. He wanted this. He wanted them to feel free to ask questions. Um, one of the things we're going to talk about is that when we, when we do small groups, our goal is not just to have a teacher that's sitting down. Okay? And, and especially when you're starting small groups, that can be the temptation. 
Because a lot of the people that sign up and say, yeah, I'd like to teach small groups, you're by nature teachers. And I get that because I am by nature a teacher. And one of the dangers is that you have teachers that sit down and they just like, okay, well, I guess I have to teach this lesson sitting down. And occasionally I have to ask these questions and wait awkwardly for nobody to answer. And then I can get back to my teaching. Okay. That's not what we're going for. What we're going for is you create an environment where people feel free to say, wait, I don't understand that. Hold on a second. Can we go back and talk about that? That's what we want. That's what Christ modeled for us when he had the 12. This is what discipleship looks like. It allows honest dialogue. I, again, this whole chapter goes back and forth. He's, he's explaining things. They're asking him questions. There's, there's a push and a shove here. And I think this is crucial if, if we're going to have successful discipleship ministries. And again, I put it in there and I'm going to say this again. None of this is intended to denigrate a preaching or a teaching ministry. Okay, and okay, we, colonial, you know, we, we do small groups, but if you think about it, you come in on Sunday morning and there's small groups, and then we have a teaching, preaching time, and then you come back Sunday night, there's a teaching, preaching time, you come back Wednesday night, there's a teaching, preaching time. Okay, we haven't cut out preaching and teaching. We're really big fans of preaching and teaching. But we realize that in addition to the preaching and teaching, there needs to be smaller interactive discipleship environments. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He taught, and then he gathered a group and he said, hey, let, let's talk about this further. Let's think through this. And, and the Holy Spirit made sure that we have uh, that record. So part of this is about the teaching aspect, but part of it is about the connection aspect of it. And so I'm just going to uh, review a couple of things from the New Testament. We could do more, but I just kind of want to hit three uh, main points as we look through this. Uh, the New Testament is full of what we call one another statements. And uh, it Hopefully you realize this. When you come to church, it's not enough to come to church. Okay? And uh, one of the questions that you often get is, well, you know, do you really have to go to church? After all, you know, really there's only like one verse in Hebrews that says you have to go to church. And my answer to that is, imagine that you decided that you wanted to play for the NFL, but you didn't want to play on a team. You're like, I really like football, I love football, and I want to be in the NFL, but I don't really like the team thing. I hate it. It's really restrictive. And so you go to um, uh, you know, an NFL coach and say, do you know any way I could play for the NFL but like, not be on a team? <laughs> now, there's some guys that seem to want to try that, but that's another conversation for another day. <laughs> Obviously, they're going to look at you and say, what? but it's a team sport. Okay, and people that say, well, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to go to church. And there's really only like kind of one verse that says I have to go to church. Like, no, the whole New Testament assumes that you are a part of a church. And by the way, not just attending a church. That's a great first step. Participating in the life of a church. Praying for one another and loving one another and exhorting one another and admonishing one another. And, 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 and you can't do all of those things if you go into a church, sit in the pew, listen to the message and walk out the door. You can't do that. And you say, well, where do, and it's not that there's like one specific verse. You're just violating a whole host of verses and the whole spirit of the New Testament, which says, hey, you're now part of a family. So let's come together and meet as a family. So I just, and again, small groups is not the only way this happens. In fact, it should happen in a variety of ways. But I think small groups is a really, really good way uh, to facilitate this kind of life body in a church. So believers are called, first of all, to fellowship. Acts 2.42. Um, let me just uh, read that briefly. It's a very familiar passage. Uh, speaking of the new church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, 
and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Okay, so there's really four elements there. They continued in doctrine, the teaching. Okay, we get that. We preach. They continued in prayer. We've got prayer meetings, right? They continued in the breaking of bread, and most people think that's probably a reference to communion. We come in, we have the Lord's Supper, and they continued in fellowship. That is an essential part of what makes a church a church is a, is a fellowship. And I wish we had time to go through all of the nuances. This is such a rich word in the New Testament, koinonia. It really has the idea of, like, of a partnership or of a belonging. It's actually sometimes used, this root word is used for financial sharing. Okay, Paul's going to talk about the fact that other churches have shared with him. By doing that, they've participated in his ministry. Uh, the word uh, koinonia can, can be turned into a noun, and it actually means a partner, like a business partner in secular Greek. Okay, the idea of this word is we all belong to each other. We're all in on this together. We're partners. We're a group. We belong to one another. And as Christians, this is going to manifest itself in a hundred practical ways. Um, but we are called to live out our lives with one another. Now, as I was preparing for this, I, was, I did what, what any uh, rational millennial would do when they're preparing uh, to do something. I've taught through this several times, but I'm like, you know what? I'm going to Google small groups and see what comes up. Uh, one of the things that came up, there's actually a movie called Small Groups. Uh, it's a Christian movie. And I watched the trailer, and I very quickly realized this is going to be a Christian movie. And if you watch a Christian movie, you know what I mean. Um, I did small groups, if you're wondering. <clears throat> but I found this, this post uh, by, a, by a pastor who just railed on small groups. And, and his, basically his argument was, look, yeah, I'm sick and tired of people saying small groups are the ways to live out the one another. That ought to be happening organically. Okay? And I kind of read that, and I thought, well, yeah, it, it should be happening organically. Also, as a pastor, on a pastoral team, I have a burden and we have a burden to set up structures that encourage organic relationships, right? It doesn't have to be an either or. And then he wrote a blog post five years later saying where I am on small groups, and he basically said the same thing. <laughs> and I clicked on, you know, I, I, I Googled uh, his ministry. I was just kind of curious. He said he was a senior pastor. And guess what? You go to his webpage, and what's on the front page? Connect with a small group. Okay, so I say that to say, is this the only way, you know, and, and, and yes, if, if small groups, anytime you create a structure, structures can ossify, they can solidify. I, I get that. And, and we, want, uh, we want the fellowship at Faith and Taylor's and Colonial Hills to be more than just a small groups ministry. But man, it's an awesome launching pad. And when you have new people come to the church and they come into that auditorium and they're terrified, and then they fill out a visitor card and somebody reaches out to them and says, hey, we've got a small groups program. Or you guys, you guys kind of have it made because you've got small groups after the main service. And you have somebody who, who pulls someone, a, a young couple aside and says, hey, we've got a, we've got a growth group, a small group. To come and join, you can, you can come and, you know, you can be in my small group and she can be in her small group. We'd love to get to know you guys. Man, that, that breaks down barriers. That makes people feel like they're a part of something. That's, um, that's fellowship. That's a enable what the New Testament has called us to do. Um, we could go through more of these. Believers are called brothers throughout the New Testament. One of my favorite commercials, it's been a while, uh, but there was a commercial, I think it was for Geico, it was for some kind of car insurance, where you have these two guys that are working out, and maybe you've seen this one, they go back and forth with various shades of, of bro, and so once, uh, you know, they're asking a question, they always end it with like, is that so, bro-tato chip? Um, and the next one says, it is, um, I, I forget all of them. Bro shake. Protein shake. Protein shake. Yeah, he's seen it. That guy's seen it. 
It was a funny commercial, okay? And I use that as an illustration. Bro, brother, has just become ubiquitous in our culture. I mean, it's everywhere. I bump into a stranger in the street. I say, oh, sorry, bro. He's not going to look at me and say, brother? I am not your brother, okay? And the reason I say that is when we come across the word brother in the New Testament, it doesn't hit us like it would have hit a first century Christian. If you're a Roman and you own slaves, okay, and there was a lot of slaves, by some estimates, upwards of one-third of the Roman population, I think, uh, would have been slaves. It, I can't remember the exact number, but it, it was a lot. And you walk into a room as the master, as the owner, as the nobleman, and your slave walks into the same room for a church service, a gathering, and you look at him and you call him brother, that is scandalous by Roman culture. That's... Romans didn't like that. That's one of the things they did not like about Christians is you have all of these people from different economic, socio-stratospheres and they're all coming together and there's no distinctions. That really, really bothered them. Now, we don't understand that as much because uh, in America, at least in theory, we don't want to have any kind of distinctions, right? We, everybody's on the same level. <laughs> By the way, we think that because this book took root in Western thought and has shaped the way we think as Americans. That's why we think that way. Roman times, they didn't think that way. It was actually seen as like upending the social order. Like you've got this group and this group and this group and this group and everyone has a role to play and you guys are just mixing up the functions. And so when we read in the New Testament, brother, 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 uh, that was shocking and, and even endless at the time. Why do I say that? Because as a church, we're a family. And when you come to church, it ought to feel like a family reunion. How do we do that? Again, not the only way, but one of the ways we can do that is through small groups. And then finally, believers are called to bear one another's burdens. I, j I just keep going back to that, that picture that I hope is, is in your mind of that massive auditorium. I, I can't tell you <laughs> how frustrating it is as a pastor to sometimes hear later, oh yeah, did you hear about so-and-so? They're in the hospital. And we, at our church, we do, we do pastoral prayer every morning. And sometimes we find out after the fact, oh yeah, somebody's been in the hospital for like three days. We didn't know. We, we, would have done a, we would have done a visit. Or to find out later, yeah, somebody had a real, real hard financial hardship. Well, you, you know, we want to be careful about just giving free handaways. But if somebody's really struggling financially, like that, the church is supposed to help one another. Sometimes we don't even know. And, you know, there's people that wouldn't call up the church office, call the secretary and say, hey, just so you know, I've got a, I'm going in for a major operation on Tuesday. It would be great if the pastors could pray for me. But you put them in a small group, and the small group leader says, any prayer requests? Yeah, um, pray for me. I've got a pretty big operation coming up on Tuesday. Oh, okay, yeah, hey, thanks for sharing. And then if it's being done right, that, that small group leader passes it up the chain, either to the deacon or the pastor. Hey, did you know that so-and-so's got an operation? We're called to bear one another's burdens. Just another way uh, as a church that we're trying to imp implement practically, uh, how can we know? And again, I know we've got Freedom That Last guys in here as well. And, uh, I, you know, for you guys, I think this is, this is particularly important. When you get together um, with people who are struggling with addictions and you get to hear uh, what they're doing and, pr and how they're doing and, and, and pray, pray with them and, and, and bear those burdens um, together. So um, we're uh, getting near the end of this session. That's the biblical foundation. I want to take a little bit of time since we've got Freedom That Last teachers in here. And I want to talk uh, practically about how to be an effective teacher. I almost, I almost got rid of the word teacher, again, because what teacher, if we're not careful, communicates is 
I'm the person who's the lecturer, right? Like what I'm doing right now. And a small group is the same thing. I just, I just sit down and do the same thing, okay? And I almost, I'm tempted. Maybe one of these days I'll have the guts to actually pull the trigger. I'm tempted to call this uh, something like a discussion facilitator, okay? Just to help get it in your mind, my goal as I'm teaching, and I, and I teach, I love teaching. We've got great small groups, our young adults group. Uh, it's, it's so much fun. I, I'm actually bummed that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to be there with them this Sunday, and I'm, I'm going to miss my small group. But my goal is not to sit down and do a content dump, okay? That's not what I'm, what I'm trying to do. Now, the, there's a lot that we're teaching, okay? This doesn't mean we kind of twiddle our thumbs and say, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think, okay? There's material. We're, we're going through it. In fact, um, the, when I set up the, uh, the material, I did a five-year plan, and we've been going through books of the Bible. We've gone through uh, major systematic theology doctrines. We've gone through Christology. Um, we've gone through ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Um, we went through the life of the kings. I mean, we don't just twiddle our thumbs. We're, we're going through material. But my main goal is not to give them as many facts as I can about what we're talking about. My main goal is to, ha is to teach the material in a way that invites discussion about what does this mean and how can we understand this better and what does this look like as we apply it in our lives. So um, your goal as a teacher is to engage the group in a Bible study. Okay, so that, uh, that raises the question, what is a successful table or what is a successful group? If our goal is connection and getting people to learn to study and think through the Bible, that goal goes beyond a mere knowledge of the content. Okay, so how do you know if I've been an effective teacher? Well, uh, here's one rule. How little are you talking? Okay, I call this a 60-40 rule. And uh, as you can see, that is copyrighted. If you're going to use a 60-40 rule, I do expect royalties. Uh, not really. Don't worry, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> come after you with lawyers like some people do. All right. What is the 60-40 rule? I think, okay, the reality is if you're teaching the lesson, you're probably going to be doing the majority of the talking, okay? You're probably going to be talking more than anybody else. And you, realistically, you're probably going to be talking a little bit more than everybody else combined. But I try to go for 60% and then 40% as other people, okay? That's, that's kind of the rubric that I put in my head because I explain it. I open it up for discussion. I wait and let, let people talk, maybe summarize and kind of keep it going. And they're like, all right, let's, let's keep going. I'll teach a little bit more of the content. What do we think about that? Um, can we think of other places in scripture that might reinforce this or might help us understand it more better? Um, maybe provide another perspective on it. What would this look like in your life? These kinds of questions, okay? But that means that as a teacher, I can't do all of the talking. And this is tough, right? And again, this is where the people who say, yeah, I'd love to be a small group teacher are normally the people who like talking because people who don't like talking typically don't want to be a small group teacher, which is understandable. So what does that mean? That means you've really got to discipline yourself. Um, you've really got to discipline yourself because I'm, I'm sitting there at the table and, and even when I'm not teaching, because I think it's, I, I, I like listening to other people teach. It's helpful for me um, to, just to kind of hear the lessons, but um, I, I have all kinds of ideas pop into my head, and I think my ideas are great. I think they're the best ideas ever, and I just want everybody at the group to know my ideas. But I also know in my heart that's not true, and that's not what's best for the group. It is not what's best for the group for me to just share everything that comes into my mind. What's best for the group is for everyone to be interacting on this together and getting different perspectives. So one way that I know that I'm being an effective teacher 
is how little am I talking? And I do. I make it a goal. I'm not going to talk. Uh, second, how many different people are participating? Okay? Now you're going to get into a small group, and here's what happens in every small group, and it's okay. Don't feel bad. Let's say you have 10 people in your small group. Three people are going to want to answer like every single question. Sometimes multiple times. Sometimes they loop around, right? So you, you say something, and they say something, and then somebody else says something, and they're like, yeah, that actually reminds me of this over here. Okay? That's fine. And then you're going to have you know, three to four that'll kind of sporadically like, pop in. And then you may have two to three that they're just they're quiet people. And I'm not saying that those people have to come to be the conversationalists that domi dominate the conversation. That's just that's not how they probably function. That's okay. But if you can encourage so that they say something and you can get a few things out of them, I have found, I've been in small groups where there's just naturally very quiet people. And um, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times those people are deep thinkers. And when they open their mouths, you want to listen because they're going to come out with something that's really well thought out and that's really helpful. So try to get as many people participating as possible. And again, that's, that's what we see, again, that's what we saw in John 14, is that all of the disciples, it's not, it's not just one. Now, that, again, even with the disciples, right? You got Peter, and he's normally the one talking for the group, but he's not always the one talking for the group. Um, Christ invited participation, and we have lots of people participating. And then finally, you want to be learning from your group. Okay? This one is really, really important. You want to be learning from your group. Okay? I write the lessons. I spend hours every week studying, researching, writing. I sit down at a small group table and I walk away thinking, wow, that was really helpful. I hadn't thought about that or that was an interesting perspective or I never would have applied that over here. Okay? You want to be learning from your group. And if you come in with a mindset that says, I know this stuff and I need to tell everybody else about this stuff, what you're going to find is that that, that gets picked up by them and they're like, oh, okay, we're just, we're just here to listen. If you come in and you are genuinely trying to learn, they're going to pick up on that as well. And they're going to realize, oh, you know what? It's not just the teacher who knows everything. Like We, we all need to be uh, contributing. If we say that we believe that every believer has the Holy Spirit and we say that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to better understand Scripture and understand what Scripture looks like in our lives, then we should expect that if we get a group of believers together, we all have something that we can be learning. So come to your small group with the expectation, if you're the teacher, that you're going to learn from the observations of the people that are there. Um, preparation, this isn't in your notes. This was in my uh, slides and I figured I'd keep it in. There's no one right way to prepare. I'm thinking, now Freedom the Last, people, you know, I'm not as familiar with your curriculum. If you're uh, teaching the small groups for Sunday morning, I'm a little bit more familiar with your curriculum. Um, and I would say that, you know, I've had people all over the place on this. I had, I had one lady, and um, she, she would reach out to me and say, hey, when's the lesson coming out? When's the lesson coming out? She said, I thought to myself, that is really intense. Okay? Other times you get emails from people at like, you know, Saturday at 9 o'clock. Hey, where was the small group lesson again? And you're like, oh boy. Um, probably don't wait all the way till Saturday at 9. Again, this is more for the, uh, for the people that are uh, teaching uh, my material. The lessons are designed to be long enough that you can't quite cover all the material. Okay, I want to give you a little bit more. I'd rather you, you have to cut stuff out than be like spinning your wheels at the end. Like, anybody else have any thoughts on what we talked about today? 
okay? And that gives you the opportunity to say, man, this is really interesting to me. I want to spend more time on this. I don't get why this is in here. We'll, we'll go over that quickly. That's okay. You don't have to, you know, you can pace yourself how you want. Um, and feel free to do your own side study. I, I've, had, I've had people, and it, I mean, it's almost heresy. I sit down, and they're like, you know, I actually want to add an extra sub-point to this main point. And everyone goes, <gasps> and looks at me, you know. And it's a really good sub-point, okay? Uh, now, I would say, <laughs> I've also had people, you know, hand out their own outlines at the beginning, okay? That's, that's not really where we want to be. Teach the material that you're given, but don't feel like this is, this is the lockbox. I can't go anywhere else. Uh, if you've got good commentaries on Ephesians, and <laughs> it's Ephesians. There's a lot out there. Um, read through them and, and do your own study on the passage. A- absolutely. Now, the lessons are designed to be a help to you so that uh, you're pretty much able, if you read through them several times, you read through the passage, you pray through the passage, you'll be ready to lead uh, a small group discussion. So how do I accomplish this? Uh, we'll end the session with this. Just a couple of questions as a teacher to think through how can you be an effective teacher. And the key really comes down to, as you're studying, to asking the right questions. You want to ask good, open-ended questions. And um, your material has a lot of good questions and has a lot of iffy questions. Okay. <laughs> At least my material. Dr. Briggs' material, I'm sure, is great. Um, but uh, it, it, I, I come up with as many questions as I can. And sometimes I'm just trying to throw things against the wall. And if you read a question, you're like, I don't get it. Well, then don't ask it. Okay. Uh, you may look at it and be like, I'm not really sure how I'd respond to that. Or I'm not sure that's going to go well with my group. Fine. Uh, don't feel like you have to ask all the questions. Ask your own questions. And if you, get, if you get good at leading discussions, sometimes these just pop up in the moment where you're talking about something and, and something comes to mind. And you're like, hey, guys, so what about, what about this situation over here? That's great. Okay, this is a conversation. It's a dialogue. It's a discussion. It's not just, okay, well, <clears throat> the, the lesson says. No, the lesson is a springboard, uh, a guided springboard. Again, don't just throw the lesson away and come with your own thing. Uh, but feel free to add questions, to be selective in which questions you ask. Um, I would say a couple of tips that aren't in the notes or the handout, uh, uh, that aren't in the PowerPoint or the handout. Uh, let me just say real quickly, first of all, the sooner you can get somebody to talk in the group, the better. I, I normally have us read around the room, and part of the reason is I was given a tip once that people aren't present in the meeting until they've heard their voice. So I try to get everybody to say something and so even if that's just reading a Bible verse, and um, I also try and put a discussion question as close as I can to the beginning. So I'll kind of introduce what we're talking about, and then I'll lead off with a discussion question. Sometimes you can just lead off with a discussion question that will then, you can then uh, lead into the, uh, the message or the, or the lesson. And the reason I do that is because I want to set the expectation from the beginning. Uh, this is a dialogue, not a monologue, okay? So uh, make sure that you're asking right questions. This is a big one. Refuse to fear silence. Especially if you're launching small groups or if you've been in a group where it's pretty much talking, talking, talking. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to ask a question and people are going to do this. And you know what? It, time is going to go by twice as fast for you as it is for them. Okay? Because you're going to feel the pressure of, silence there's an awkward silence there's an awkward silence and you're gonna break and you're gonna like okay well let's just keep moving on no no don't just move on okay um i, I put here in the notes it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek but it's also somewhat not uh the first time you ask a question you will likely get a bunch of blank stares okay. count to 10 before answering it will be awkward pretend to be oblivious smile naively 
your group will eventually get the idea, either we answer the question or there's gonna be another awkward silence, okay? <laughs> you want them to be more afraid of the awkward than you are, that's okay. Now some people like the awkward, okay? And you know, they, they almost enjoy making other people feel awkward. If that's you, this is gonna be, this is right up your alley, okay? <laughs> also seek help, no. Um, <laughs> You know, we, we did this, and um, we did it in our singles group, and in our singles group at the time, we were doing um, co-ed tables, and there was uh, one of the ladies who reached out to my wife, uh, because my wife was in our group, and, and I was teaching it, and she told my wife, she said, you know, I really appreciate that Pastor Ben waits after he asks the question, because she said, it just, it takes me a minute for me to organize and collect my thoughts. Now, now some people, okay, and this is, this is how I tend to be. Some people, your brain just naturally work quick, right? And you're spouting off ideas. Um, I get told sometimes, especially by our senior saints, that when I preach, I preach too fast. And they're right, okay? I'm the kind of guy who listens to Ben Shapiro on double speed. Like, that's just, <laughs> that's just where I'm at, okay? But it, not everybody is like that. And again, the teachers tend to be the type A personalities, they tend to be the talkers, they tend to be the quick thinkers. And so they're like, mm, nobody said anything, nobody's going to say anything. That's not true. Some people just need to stop and think about it and process it. And if you just let people think and process it, you may get some better answers than you're expecting. And sometimes you'll have somebody say something and somebody else will, that'll jog something for somebody else. And before you know it, there's a whole conversation going because you just waited five seconds for somebody to answer, okay? Um, to fear the silence. I would say that this is probably one of the most important things because I've, I, I've been in small groups and I think the biggest frustration when I'm listening to other teachers is I walk away and I'm like, man, I wish they gave people more opportunity to respond. Um, and you know what, if there's kind of a long pause at the end, I'm like, okay, all right, well, let's go ahead and, and keep going. But, but it communicates to them, I'm serious when I say, is there any feedback? That's not something that I'm doing that's an expectation that's put on me and there's a question, so I ask a question, okay, good, let's keep going. No, I really want to know, what do you guys think about that? Let's talk briefly about dealing with distractions, okay? And uh, we'll wrap up with this. This can, be, uh, this can be a challenge when you do small groups. People go off on tangents. What do you do with people who go off on tangents? And I'll just cut to the end when it says much of this is a, is a wisdom issue, and, and it's true, much of it is a wisdom issue, and a lot of this is going to cause for, call for discernment. It's going to call for training. You're going to get it right sometimes. You're going to get it wrong other times. Um, but here's a couple of suggestions. First of all, if the person is taking a really long time to answer a question and this happens, okay, be nice about it, but look for an opportunity to jump in. And jump in and thank them for their contribution. Maybe summarize a little bit. So yeah, you really do need to be thinking uh, not just what do I want, but what does God want? Thanks for, you know, I appreciate that. Anybody else? Okay. I might hurt their feelings. Well, maybe, um, but you don't, you don't want one person dominating the group, okay? Um, if someone continues to do this, okay, and, and you'll have this, they answer every single question. They take a long time, okay? It's the 60-20-20 rule. You speak 60%, and then they talk as much as everybody else combined. Um, there may be grounds, and this is hard to do. I don't know that anyone's ever actually done this, but I recommend it every year. There may be a time if you have a relationship with that person to say, hey, you know, I really appreciate your contribution. Um, 
but you might want to give other people the opportunity and just explain to them. You know, some people it takes a while to, to think about it. I really, I'm not telling you don't. I, I'm not telling you don't participate, but just maybe uh, think through if there might be a way that you could uh, dial that back some. Um, here's the real challenging question, though. What if somebody says something wrong? Okay. Well, we want to be careful. It depends on what we mean by wrong. You know, hey, thank you. I appreciate that contribution. By the way, that's First Corinthians 13, not Corinthians 13. Okay, let's keep going. You, you don't need to do that, right? Um, but you may have somebody say something at the table, and you think to yourself, I can't really let that stand. There are times when you think to yourself, you know what, that, that's something that I can't just overlook. Well, you know, yeah, the Bible says that, but sometimes we don't want to be overly literalistic. Sometimes the Bible says stuff that just practically isn't going to work out. You're like, no, no, you, you, you can't. And if, and if I just say, okay, yeah, thanks, and I keep going, um, I, I just gave a, a little bit of tacit approval to that. So how do, you, how do you do that? Well, you may need to just gently correct them. Okay, uh, let's be careful there. So if the Bible is sometimes wrong, uh, how do we know if it's right or wrong? Well, I, I mean, you just if it makes sense. Okay, so we kind of decide. It's up to us to decide. So if I get to decide when the Bible's right and the Bible's wrong, who's the ultimate authority? Me or the Bible? Okay. They may not like that. I don't think Peter liked it when Christ looked at him and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. But Peter needed that. And there are times when people say things that are wrong and you have to just call them out on it. Now, do it graciously. Do it nicely. Um, but do it, do it firmly and say, well, let's be careful. Let's, let's take that back to Scripture. Ask questions if you can, okay? And that's what I did in my example. So if, if we get to decide when the Bible's right and the Bible's wrong, who's the ultimate authority? Or if they say something that's unbiblical, say, huh. So, but Scripture says this over here. How, how does what you say match up with that? And, and let them come to that conclusion. Uh, this, is, this is what God does. This is what Jesus does. There's lots of questions in the Bible. Um, and so, again, pray in the moment, honestly. Pray for wisdom. It's not fun when you have to tell somebody they're wrong, especially in America. Like, we don't, we don't like telling people they're wrong. Everybody's right about everything all the time. Um, but it can be important. And then one last, I, I lied, one last point here. Lead by example. More will be said by what you do than by what you say. Whether you're a freedom that lasts uh, person, whether you're a, a small group teacher, if you've been tasked to be a teacher or a group leader, uh, you may not think of it this way, but you're being put up as an example. So think through this. It, it means that um, how you, you know, when you show up matters, okay? If the group leader's constantly showing up, like right before it happens or two minutes after it starts, that's, that's going to communicate to the group, ah, oh, this isn't really that important. Um, if you've got your act together versus you're kind of all over the place, sorry guys, I didn't really get a ch- chance to study this a whole lot, you know, this week. Well, you just communicate to them, okay, this isn't, this isn't really that important. Um, if they see participating in, in stuff that the church is doing or, you know, skipping out on services, they're like, oh, well, you know, the, the, the small group leader doesn't even, doesn't even come or doesn't do that. Remember, if you're being tasked and somebody's telling you, hey, you're a leader, um, then when faith picks you and says, we're going to put you forward as a leader, you are now an example and a model to people of what they ought to be. And that shouldn't be like, oh, cool, I'm a leader. It should be a humbling thing. Wow, Lord, please help me to be the kind of leader that would point people back to you. Seek to be a leader and an example, not just a source of knowledge.
Okay. All right. Uh, thank you for your good attention. We're going to take a little bit of a break. I know that one went a little long, but I thought that was, uh, that was important. Um, we're going to split out, I think, at this point and have the Freedom That Last people go uh, somewhere else. And then uh, those that are doing the small groups will reconvene here. Again, that QR code will take you to a form where you can ask questions. And please do ask questions. Okay. Like I, I'm serious. I want to I talk through these questions. Um, practice what I preach. Pastor Caleb, any